and please do take a seat. Um, it is great uh, to be back together this evening in the book of Genesis. We've been gradually working our way through from uh, Genesis 37, and we've reached uh, this evening chapter 42. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, do open it up to the passage that Glenn uh, read for us earlier. However, before we begin, we get into this passage, I just wanted uh, to share an observation. Um, it is coming up to Halloween, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed as you've been driving down the streets, as you've walked uh, close to your home, as you've gone into shopping centers. Seems to be everywhere, doesn't it? Pumpkins? Yes, I like pumpkins. Ghosts? Giant spiders, seemingly, this year. I don't know where they've suddenly uh, come from. Uh, and two other things, too, that I think do also seem to be newer onto the scene, particularly uh, as obvious as they are. I don't know if you've seen these little fake tombstones that people are putting into their front gardens. Um, and also those skeletons kind of half coming out um, of the ground. And as horrible as most of those things are, and I often do find myself kind of turning away from them, here is the fascinating thing that I find at this time of year. Suddenly, the topic that we love to avoid at any cost the rest of the year, that we love to speak around rather than ever to speak directly about, suddenly it is shoved right in our face. The topic of death. See, in many ways, it isn't surprising that for most of the year we try to avoid talk of death, right? It probably is the most painful thing. It rips people, families, friends apart. It leaves gaping holes in people's lives where others once were. And of course, there is that fear of what waits the other side of it. But once a year, it seems, at Halloween... Though perhaps in, in a mocking way, and maybe that's why it's there, we put death back in the cultural agenda, don't we? It looms large. And in a similar way, as we pick back up here in Genesis 42, the same topic looms large. The topic of death. See, as we pick back up the story again now with Jacob and the rest of Joseph's family back in Canaan, we find out that the famine has reached them too. They are without food, and so much so that there is this very real risk for them of dying. Look in verse 2 with me at what Jacob tells the brothers there. He says in the second half of the verse there, Go down to Egypt and buy grain for us there that we may live and not Die. Death at the doorstep. So what will happen? Will this family, God's chosen people, the chosen family, be able to pull through and survive? Will they live or will they die? See, as readers at this point in Genesis, I think we are left genuinely wondering if this might really be the end for Jacob and his family. Do you remember what we've seen of them so far? They are a vengeful, morally corrupt, hate-filled family, hearts filled with deceit, filled with envy, filled with anger. 
Will God simply move on from them? Will he leave them to die? Have they gone too far, even for God's grace? Is death next for them? And as we begin to wonder that, here is the incredible thing, that as we work our way through these next three or four chapters or so, we are going to see that that isn't at all the case. No, in fact, God is going to graciously work, even in this mess of a family, to bring life from death. To bring life from death. And incredibly, not just to bring to physically give them life by providing materially for them, but even more importantly than that, to actually bring them to spiritual life from spiritual death. This chapter and the following ones chart two journeys, a physical journey and a spiritual journey, both journeys from death to life. And as we begin to see that this evening, God's grace and provision for this family, his work in bringing life from death, here is the thing for us to see, that God is continuing to do the same thing today in people's lives, bringing life and hope where otherwise there would only be death and despair. As we work through this passage this evening, we're going to draw it to a conclusion at the end, but, but here is what I want you to be thinking as we're working through the passage, of the details here. How is it that God has worked, possibly similarly to how we're going to see him working here, in your life? Is God right now working similarly in your life? To bring life from death. So that those tombstones and skeletons that we see at every corner at this time of year do not need to hold the same fear and dread that the world seems to have. So let's get into the passage and see this. God working to bring life from death. And we're going to see this in pairs, that provision of material, physical life, and also spiritual life. First of all, if you look with me to verses 1 to 5, the first half of our first pair. We're going to see here how God works to bring life from death through material provision of grain in Egypt. This is what we saw at the end of chapter 41, isn't it? That the grain Joseph had stored up in Egypt was being sold, wasn't it, to all these different people. They were coming to Egypt to buy it. And this news has reached Jacob here in chapter 42, verse 1. We read, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go and buy grain that we may live and not die. So we see then 10 of Joseph's brothers going down to Egypt to buy grain. 10 of them uh, are going on this journey Three weeks, we think it probably took them around that kind of time if we're working out the distances. And just Benjamin is left behind. I guess 10 of them went because that, what will that provide? That will provide lots of donkey space or space on their backs to carry back this grain that they need if they're going to live and the families at home too. And so we see here God's material provision. Verse 5, we see the sons of Israel coming to buy among the others who came, God providing exactly what they needed for life 
He provides this place, Egypt, and he provides this food for them to come and get that they may live and not die. But as we see this material provision, we also see hints here, too, of the second half of this pair, of God working to bring life from death by also beginning to spiritually awaken the brothers. In particular, by the fact that it was in Egypt. I don't know if you've noticed that detail. It's in Egypt. Joseph hasn't moved on. This is where he was heading to when they sold him, remember. This is where they're going to have to go to buy this grain. Back in Genesis 37, we read that the brothers sold Joseph at Shechem to these Midianite traders, and they knew where those traders were headed. We read then that they were headed to Egypt. And I think this is now God just beginning to prick the consciences of these brothers. Up to this point, what were they? Completely spiritually dead. Sinners dead in their, dead in their sin. Look in verse 1 here. Jacob asked this question. It's a kind of a bit of a random question at first, isn't it? As they learn that there is grain for sale in Egypt, he says this to his sons. Why do you look at one another? Now, I guess Jacob could be doing a number of things. He could be just rebuking his son, saying, why are you just sitting there? Get on with it. Go and get the grain. But I just wonder if there might be something else going on here. As these brothers hear that it is in Egypt that this grain is for sale, they exchange looks back and forth. You know, that look across the dinner table that maybe you give to your friend or family member when someone brings that topic up that you'd, you'd kind of hoped wouldn't ever be at the dinner table. I wonder if this is just the beginning of Joseph's brothers looking at each other and thinking, yeah, Egypt. That brings back some memories. And then what about how God works it that for good reason or not, Jacob keeps Benjamin behind? That then means that it is only these same 10 brothers. Do you remember those same 10 brothers who committed that crime against Joseph? They, together, alone, spend three weeks now charting this course. You may not be able to see it there, but it runs along the top. This course all the way down from Hebron to, the, to Egypt. See, it's hard to imagine that whether they mentioned it out loud or not, as these brothers trudged along, they must have been thinking, this is the same journey we sent our brother on so many years ago. This is the one that our cruelty, our hatred, he had sent him on this journey to slavery. Just beginning maybe here, some awakening to the extent of the guilt of these brothers. God beginning this work of spiritually bringing them to life to where they could see their need for forgiveness and for God to work in them. Then, of course, as we, uh, the brothers arrive in Egypt, going on from verse 5, we read that God brings them to the very place where Joseph himself was selling the grain. So that again, the first half of this next pair, God can materially provide for them. 
We read there in verse 6 that Joseph was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And this is, of, of course, true. He was the one who was overseeing the whole operation, wasn't he? But it couldn't possibly have meant, right, that he, oversaw, that he oversaw every single sale. And yet, what do we see here? God's providence. His work that as the brothers finally reach the front of the queue, a queue, by the way, you can imagine being even longer than that online queue for the latest Taylor Swift tickets these days, right? That's endless. As they reach the end of that long, winding queue, who do they come face to face with? Joseph. Although they don't initially come face to face with him, do they? If you look with me, the second half of verse 6, we read that as Joseph's brothers come forward, they bow themselves before Joseph, their faces to the ground. Where does that take us as readers of Genesis back to? Where we began this series, chapter 37, Joseph's dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. In fact, in verse 9, the writer tells us that Joseph himself is also taken back to those moments too. Here it was. This was the moment that God was revealing to Joseph would happen all those years ago. Now, we'll get into some of the details of the interactions here in the second half of, of this pair. But now again, I want us to see how the brothers coming to Egypt, and in particular how them coming to Joseph, it is God's work in ensuring that they do materially receive all that they need and more, that they may live and not die. See, as harsh as Joseph initially seems to be with the brothers as they come to him, actually in coming to Joseph and not some other local seller of this grain, God has made sure that they will come to someone who will have compassion on them who will generously provide. See, other sellers, they could have not known who these brothers were, and right, they could have rationed the grain, maybe just give them enough to, to get back. Or they could even have genuinely questioned who they were, where they were coming from. But here, Joseph knows his brothers. And we know that Joseph, and God has been at work in him to be a man of compassion, full of forgiveness, as we'll see in the chapters Ahead. And so in verse 25, what is the result of them coming? If you look with me, verse 25, Joseph gives orders to fill their bags with grain, not just a little bit, to replace every man's money in his sack, incredible generosity, and even then to also give them provisions for the journey. God, through Joseph, works to bring life from death to materially provide all that these brothers could need, and even more. As they go back, God has provided for them. The need for those tombstones we were talking about earlier, at least now delayed a little bit longer. But of course, tied to all of this, and hopefully you're seeing the pattern here, God is also again working to bring spiritual life from death, as he again brings about a spiritual awakening in the brothers through this interaction with Joseph in these verses. Now, at first glance, it could seem that Joseph's reaction and how he treats the brothers here in verses 7 to 25 is overly harsh. Look with me, for example, at how, what we read in verse 7. 
Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And then, even despite the fact that we read that he has recognized them, he goes on in verse 9 to accuse them, to accuse them of being spies who have come to see the nakedness of the land. And this is something he again accuses them of in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 16. Now, why is Joseph treating the brothers like this? Is he exacting revenge on them for what he did, for what they did to him? Well, I don't think he's doing that at all. I think this is actually more Joseph doing what he can to test the brothers, to see how have my brothers changed over these past years since they sold me off so cruelly to slavery? How would my brothers respond to this kind of accusation, being a spy, something right that could end up in their own enslavement or even death? See, their response in this kind of pressure is going to reveal a lot about the brothers, isn't it? And in particular, too, Joseph's insistence on them bringing Benjamin to him is important here. Remember, it was Joseph and Benjamin who were the two sons born to Jacob by Rachel, the wife who he loved most. And it was Benjamin who we already saw in this chapter uh, has become, has in some ways taken Joseph's place, hasn't he, as Jacob's favorite son. How were these brothers now treating Benjamin? Joseph must have been wondering. And up to verse 20, we find out, along with Joseph, a couple of things about the brothers in this situation. First, we find out that there is a certain honesty about them and what they say. They even mention out loud in verse 13, one who is no more, Joseph. I guess they could well have left that detail out, couldn't they? And we do see them also in their answers, seeming to pull together rather than throwing each other under the bus, rather than in fighting. Their insistence, if you look at verse 11, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. And then verse 13 too, we, your servants, are 12 brothers. A unity, a togetherness that perhaps we haven't seen before. But lying behind Joseph's testing here, I think, is also God's providential hand. Because as Joseph speaks like this to his brothers, God is again working in their hearts. We see this in a couple of ways, I think, culminating in what we read them saying to each other in verses 21 and 22. First, it seems that as Joseph tests the brothers in this way, there is a mirroring going on to what the brothers had themselves put Joseph through. Let me explain what I mean. Back in chapter 37, we had read of this harsh treatment that the brothers had put Joseph through, hadn't we? And here in this chapter, we also find something new out about those events. Many years previously, as those brothers had cruelly treated Joseph, verse 21, we also read this detail. 
that as they treated him in this way, they saw the distress of his soul when he begged them, and they did not listen. As the brothers had mistreated Joseph, perhaps even falsely accusing him of things, like Joseph is falsely accusing them, Joseph had, it seems, called out to them again and again for mercy, for compassion, for help. Well, seeing that, doesn't what's happening here in this chapter feel very similar? And this is why the brothers are prompted, I think, to remember this detail. As the brothers now come to Joseph, they too are crying out to him for help, for mercy. But up to this point, all that they've found is someone not listening, just as they had not listened all those years ago. Someone insisting, no, you are spies, time and time again. This is someone who, just like they, had the power to enslave Joseph, also now has the power to enslave them. And interesting, as they reflect on this seeming harsh treatment that they themselves were receiving, God also ordains another little detail. Verse 17, that as part of this, they would be put all together, all ten brothers, in custody for three days. Three more days for these brothers to stew, to think, to talk together perhaps even of all that's happening, and above all, to reflect on and just begin to feel the weight, the seriousness of their past sin. And then, of course, there's this other essential detail of how God uses Joseph to bring these brothers on this journey from death to life. And we find that in verse 18. On the third day of their imprisonment, we read that Joseph goes to the brothers and says this, do this and you will Live. See the theme here. For I fear God. And then he goes on, doesn't he, to say about one of these brothers remaining in prison while the others take the grain back, insisting that they then bring Benjamin, his brother, back with them. But the detail that stands out in all of that is this Joseph points the brothers to God. A lack of a fear of God was one of the reasons why the brothers had treated Joseph so badly in the first place. There's no mention of God on their lips at any point that we read. Well, now Joseph essentially says to them, that is not how I do things, because I really do fear God. Remembering he is the one who sees and knows everything about me. He is the one who will rightly judge all that I do. And of course, as Joseph says this, it must have come as a bit of a surprise, mustn't it, to the brothers? Who is this Egyptian prince-like figure who's speaking in this way about God? Must have set them back a bit. And yet here he is doing just that, reminding them, surely as he does that, of their own standing before this all-seeing, all-knowing God reminding them of the guilt that they carry before him because of what they've done. And all of this, God's work in causing a spiritual awakening of sorts in the brothers comes to a head there in verses 21 and 22 that we've mentioned a few times. Let's read them again together. 
Verse 21, after Joseph has just spoken to them about God and given them this proposal about bringing back Benjamin, they turn and they say to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against this boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. All that the brothers say there, they don't realize, do they, that Joseph can understand too. He's been using this interpreter, hasn't he, to speak with them. But understand he does. In verse 24, Joseph turns away, doesn't he, and weeps. Here, finally, is the clearest proof that these brothers really have begun to change, have begun to reflect on the seriousness of what they did to Joseph those years ago. A recognition also you see there in Reuben's words that their past actions merit judgment, reckoning of some kind, as Reuben calls it. And here in this, Joseph loses it, doesn't he? Before then composing himself and coming back to speak to them. Now, what was going on in Joseph's heart at this point, we don't know. We aren't specifically told. And yet there must have been, as we think about it, this slight glimmer of hope now for him, Right? Maybe there is a path to reconciliation with these brothers. If they are genuinely repentant, if they're sorry for what they've done, if they've changed, well, perhaps one day they will not be bowing before me, but again, we can share that mutual affection that brothers should. And of course, that's what we finally see in a few weeks' time in chapter 45. So, to sum up, what have we seen so far? That God has worked to bring life from death in Egypt and through Joseph for these brothers. As a result of all that's happened, God has done this materially. The brothers have returned to Canaan. We read that in verse 26. They return to Canaan with the grain that they need so that they may live and not die. But of course, even more than this, God has begun this work spiritually too. As the brothers return, changed men because of this journey. As we've just been saying, we see this in the confession of guilt and the initial signs of remorse in verses 21 to 22. And we also see this evidence of change, I think, as we then look through the rest of this chapter in three other details. First of all, And most importantly, I think, in verses 22 and 28, we see some kind of recognition for the first time of God and a fear of him and his judgments, his justice. Back in verse 22, Reuben had implicitly, hadn't he, spoken of God's right judgments when he spoke of the reckoning that they were seeming to receive for what they'd done to Joseph. And then in verse 28... This is such an important moment in our passage. As one of the brothers opens his sack and realizes that his money has been returned to him, incredibly, we hear on the mouths of the lips of these brothers for the very first time the name of God. 
We read there in verse 28 that finding this money causes their hearts to fail them and that turning, trembling to one another, they say, what is this that God has done to us? Where before, God never seemed to enter these brothers' minds. Now, they directly attribute this act. This must be God. This must be his doing. And they, they, they fearfully wonder, don't they? What could this possibly mean for us? God is changing these men. He's reminding them of the fact that all their ways are open before him. That all they have done stands before the Lord for him to judge rightly. Then also, we see a change in these brothers in their increasing honesty that they seem to show in verses 29 to 34. There they recount, don't they, all that's happened to Joseph. And while they don't yet go back to confess their previous sin towards Joseph, they do in these verses speak openly of all that happened, not trying to trick their father, which is something that they'd done before, hasn't it? But they explain everything that happened to him. I don't know if you spotted how often they themselves or Joseph used this phrase, honest men. I made it, including these verses, five times that either they describe themselves or Joseph does as honest men. And that is in many ways ironic, isn't it? As we we read this, these are far from honest men. And yet, what here, in amongst this irony, there is a hint of hope too. Well, perhaps these are increasingly honest men. That is what God is making them into, that they would speak as openly as they do to their father. And then finally, we also see this in the imperfect but heartfelt words of Reuben. We see a changing attitude towards family, which again, I think we can take back to God's work in their lives over this chapter. See, as Jacob hears about all that's happened, and as all the brothers also open their sacks and find this money in them, Jacob despairs, doesn't he? Verse 36, he says to the brothers, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon, left behind in Egypt, is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And just notice the heartfelt response of Reuben here. Again, it's not perfect what he says. But where before these brothers clearly didn't seem to have any care for the grief of their father when they sent Joseph off into slavery, now Reuben, he even pledges, he cares so much, he pledges he would even kill his own two sons if he fails to bring Benjamin back to his father. Reuben cannot bear to see his father like this. And what about his attitude to Benjamin, this, this new favorite son who's replaced Joseph? Well, again, in saying this, he is pledging, isn't he? He is pledging, I will keep him safe. Now, don't get me wrong. We have not in this chapter seen a complete transformation in the lives of these brothers yet. There is still more that God will continue to do in them over the coming chapters. And yet what we do see here is so clearly God working in these brothers through all of these details that we've been thinking about, through all that has happened. 
And he's been working to begin this journey, this much more important journey than the physical one they've been on, this journey to bring spiritual life from spiritual death. Like the drip after drip in a bucket that just gradually becomes that small puddle and grows and becomes larger and larger and bigger and bigger. So God has moved in the hearts of these brothers, drip after drip, giving them a greater and greater awareness of their sin, reminding them of their guilt, drawing them to himself, reminding them of his right judgment. And the result of those drips is this growing, changing heart, this attitude, this desire that has shifted, hasn't it? And as we said at the beginning, here is where I think the rubber hits the road then for us tonight. Seeing how God has done this in the past, it should, first of all, encourage us. should encourage us and remind us that God is a God who does not give up on even the most messed up family. Messed up person. He is gracious and he is kind. He reaches down into people's lives. And he brings them to himself through things, even like changing circumstances, through suffering, through prompts, through reminders. And so just as God has done this in the past, he continues to do the same today, doesn't he? In the lives of people right across our world. Today, God continues to work in people's hearts through one thing after another, drip after drip. Perhaps a situation or a circumstance that takes us out of our usual comfortable pattern of life, makes us stop and reflect where we wouldn't otherwise. Perhaps through something happening to you that, like the brothers, makes you reflect on your own past sin. Perhaps it's just God in the quietness of your own heart bringing you to an awareness of your need of him. And then perhaps, and often, this is how God works, isn't it? Perhaps it's through someone speaking truths about God to you, reminding you, just like Joseph reminded the brothers, that all your ways are before him. He is a righteous judge. He is the one who will judge all that we do. He is the one who we should fear. I wonder if, like for the brothers, if you're a Christian here this evening... You can look back on those moments in the lead up to when God brought you to a newness of life, when before you were spiritually dead, when God first, by the Holy Spirit, brought you into this conviction of sin and your need of him. I wonder as you look back, do you see anything like we've seen this evening in your life? Perhaps God using your circumstances, family, Friends, people around you, truths about himself to bring you to himself. I wonder if you can even think of those, some of those things now. What was it or who was it that God used to spiritually awaken you? So that as we read in Colossians 2 or Ephesians 2, you who were dead in your trespass could today be alive in Christ.
all your, forget, all your sins forgiven. This passage this evening, you see, uh, points forward. It points forward to the story, I think, of every Christian here tonight, of how God, in his grace, intervened, how he worked in your life, and how he has brought you to himself, how he prompted you, he challenged you, he put people in your way, he opened the truths of his word to you, all leading you into this saving knowledge of him, so that you would live and not die. We're going to sing these words in just a moment. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, the truth is that for the brothers here, for Jacob and his family, apart from God's work, apart from God's grace, the path that they were on was a one-way path to judgment and to death. Death loomed large for this family, both physically but also spiritually, didn't it? Those Halloween-esque tombstones, that's where they were headed. And as we've already said, there was nothing in this family to make them worthy of God's work in them like this. There's nothing that merited this favor, this work. They were dysfunctional. They were broken. They were a sin-infested family. And yet God reached into their lives and began this work of changing them. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? As one commentator puts it, you may not have committed the sins of these brothers, but you have sins of your own. And it is only God's gracious work in your life that he has lifted you out of those sins, that he has brought you to himself, brought you to newness of life in Jesus. Where does this passage leave us this evening if we are a Christian here? Surely it leaves us on our knees in thankfulness, in praise of our God who did not abandon us and leave us when we were dead in our sins, but reached down. He would send his son to die for us. God graciously working in our lives and drawing us to himself. The physical tombstone might still wait, await each of us here if Christ doesn't return first. But as a Christian this evening, that does not need to hold fear or dread like it holds for the world around us. Because in God's grace, and only because of God's gracious work in our lives, that will be a doorway to eternal life to come. God will bring life from death for all who are trusting in him. And of course, the other thing is that as Christians this evening, this kind of work of God doesn't end at us coming to know him for the first time. But as we've been thinking about recently on Sunday mornings, God is continuing this same work. He is the same gracious God in particular through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, continuing to convict us of sin, continuing to sanctify us, to teach us, to lead us and guide us. And often he is still continuing to do that through circumstances. 
like we've seen here this evening. I wonder if you, as you look at your own life this evening, you can see any of that, of how God even today is continuing his gracious work, sanctifying you, sharpening you, maybe waking you again from spiritual lethargy or drowsiness, from your own self-reliance. God using people, his word, whatever it may be, to draw you back to himself. He's continuing to do the same work. And then let me just finish by saying this too. If you're here this evening or if you're listening along online or whenever you're hearing this, if you're not a Christian, do not let the message of this chapter pass you by. See, death will sooner or later loom large for all of us. And though we might mock it a bit at this kind of year at Halloween, Death is no laughing matter. Death, apart from Christ, is a dreadful thing. But that is also why this evening's passage speaks so much hope. So much hope to us. Because, do you know, as God did provide materially for these brothers, he was also doing something else. He was meaning that this line, this chosen line, would continue. And that line would one day mean Jesus comes, the Messiah, the serpent crusher, as we've been thinking about in Genesis, the one who could transform death into life. And his coming could transform death into life for you tonight too, making a way for you to be right again with God. If you're here this evening or listening, wherever you are, could God even be using this word this evening as a means of showing you your need of him? If God is working in your heart, you're sensing him moving, call out to him this evening. Come to Christ. There is never a better moment than now to find the newness of life in him. The brothers in this story are a testament that no one is too far from God's grace. He has sent his son to make a way that tonight we can be truly alive. Christ came to offer you life in place of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your gracious work in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the example that we've seen here of your work in these brothers' lives. Lord, we've just seen the beginning of it. We'll continue to see it over the, the coming chapters, Lord. But we see here you reaching down into their lives, showing them yourself and showing them their need of you, revealing their guilt. Lord, we thank you for how you have done that in our lives too. Lord, we thank you for how you have shown us by the Spirit our need of you, for that conviction of guilt that ultimately has drawn us to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for your work in sending your Son, that, Lord, we would be those today who do not need to fear death, but instead today are alive in Christ. And to come, there is an eternity of life in your presence.
Lord, we thank you for that transforming work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your gracious work in our lives because, Lord, none of us deserve it. Lord, we would not have sought you if you had not come and sought us. And we thank you. Lord, for any who are listening here, who are here this evening, who have not yet put their hope in Christ, Lord, please would you just continue to speak in their hearts. Show them their need of him, Lord, and of the the life that he is offering again this evening. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing of God's grace as we uh, close this evening. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound as we sing and rejoice in his work in our lives. Let's stand as the musicians play.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.